campaigning in New Hampshire. This week on Q&A, former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens looks back on his 34 and a half years on the court and speaks about his new book. Justice John Paul Stevens, you have a book. It's called a Supreme Court Memoir, but it's called Five Chiefs. Why? Well, because... uh Uh, It's a book about the chief justices of the United States, and the reason I've written about five is that I've had personal contact with uh, five of the 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 most recent five chiefs. So I've just that that they're the five to whom the title refers. Let me put on the screen uh, a, a slide that shows these five names and the times that they were serving uh, on the court, and it starts with. uh, uh, Fred Vinson, right. who uh, was nominated by President Truman, he served seven years. Earl Warren by President Eisenhower served 15 and a half years. Warren Burger about 17 years, appointed by Richard Nixon. William Rehnquist by President Reagan, 19 years. And John Roberts, who's the current Chief Justice, by uh, President George Walker Bush, six years. Start with Fred Vinson. What, do you, what did you write about him? Well, there uh, are uh, two two parts of it, I guess. I haven't I haven't taken a second look at it recently, as I mentioned to you. But uh, there's a discussion of uh, his appointment, a, lo- a little bit about his appointment, and about his work, uh, uh, partly uh, through the observations of one of his former law clerks, uh, Arthur Cedar, who was a classmate of mine in law school and remains a very good friend. As a matter of fact, we were born on the same day, so that we have a lot of reasons to be friends. But but uh, I, talking to Art gave me some uh, things I thought would be of interest in the book. So I got, uh, that's one source. And a second source is my own experience the year ahead of uh, Art's clerkship when I was clerking for Justice Rutledge. And I had a, a few chances to come in contact with uh, uh, Chief Justice Benson uh, during that period, and so I've talked a li- a, 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 in the book a little bit about the things that I had personal contact with, and perhaps at a little greater length about some of the opinions he wrote, uh, particularly in the year that I I was a clerking at the court. What year did you clerk at the court? I clerked on the ni- October 1947 term, and others from. Uh, I began. I, I went to work in I think sometime in September of '47, and I was there until uh, I guess June, the end of June and early July of '48. That year or so you were there. What did you take away from it? That's oh, I took away a lot. <laughs> That's a, a wonderful experience, as, as uh, other former law clerks can tell you. I. Uh, I, I don't cover all this in the book, of course, but uh, I took away some wonderful friendships with clerks in other chambers, and I learned an awful lot about the law and about the uh, working of the Supreme Court, uh, things that are still pretty much the same, as well as things that have changed over the years. And uh, uh, it was a very rewarding professional experience. How did you get that clerkship? Well, that's kind of a long story, too. The um, um, the uh, c- a Congress authorized a second c- 
clerkship for uh, members of the court in the summer of 1947, if I remember correctly. And Justice Rutledge decided to hire a second clerk. And he was approached by two members of the faculty at Northwestern, Willard Wirtz, who later became uh, Secretary of uh, Labor, and uh, Willard Pedrick, who had clerked for Vincent when he was a Court of Appeals judge. And they were persuaded, both Vincent and Rutledge, to take advantage of the uh, opportunity to hire a new clerk under, pursuant to the statute. And they persuaded them that the two Northwestern graduates would be well qualified for those positions. And the two, of, the two that were qualified were my good friend Art Cedar and I, who, who had pretty good uh, grades at Northwestern, and they thought that both of us were qualified. And so they, uh, late in the, in the spring, or I guess it was early summer of 47, they had a meeting with us in the, in the law review office at Northwestern and told us that the, they thought these two clerkships were pretty certainly available and uh, said they weren't sure which one should go for which job and suggested they'd like us to make that decision. And as it turned out, the clerkship with Rutledge was available the following year, whereas the additional clerkship with Vinson was available the year after that and was a two-year requirement, whereas the Rutledge was just necessarily a one-year requirement. And Art and I both felt we were ancient citizens because we had experience in the war and were older than we thought uh, other, you know, other law graduates might have been before the war. And we're both anxious to get into professional work as soon as we could. So we, we both preferred the Rutledge clerkship, even though the Chief Justice clerkship sounds like it might have been a better job. So we settled it by flipping a coin. <laughs> and I, I won the coin flip and uh, had the privilege of getting started with uh, Justice Rutledge after the course. After, the, after we'd d done the coin flipping and, the, and decisions, we, we still had to get the job. We really, it just was a question of what we'd apply for. But, but uh, both the, uh, Professor uh, Wirtz and Professor Pedrick uh, and other members of the faculty supported our applications and I guess persuaded the, the justices that we were indeed qualified. Now, did Willard, did you have Willard Wirtz in class? Yes. Yeah, he was a, I took labor law from him. Your friend Art Cedar, is he still alive? Yes, yes. Now, I, I got to ask, you know, I mean, you've lived a long time. <laughs> right. 91 years? Uh, yes, and a little more. And, and as I, and maybe I already mentioned, Art and I were born on the same day. It's a very strange coincidence. What have you two done that's uh, kept you alive all these years? Well, we've worked hard, and <laughs> we've exercised, and we've had uh, good advice from our respective spouses, and we've had interesting lives and, and, uh, and happy lives. That makes a big difference, too. Where does he live now? He's in, in, in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, right now. Go back to Fred Vinson. What do you remember from, about Fred Vinson? Was he a big man? Where did he come from? How did he get on the court as Chief Justice? Well, uh, he was not a big man. He was heavy. He was a heavy uh, uh, man. In fact, uh, that's that's one of the incidents I, I think I've worked into the book that uh, on occasion uh, when his his 
messenger who would usually drive him to work and back uh, uh, back to the uh, hotel where he lived. Uh, the uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. You know the Wardman? Wardman yeah, the Wardman Park. Uh, Art would occasionally have to drive him home in, a, in his beat-up old <laughs> old Ford car that was several years old, and Vince had had a little trouble getting in and out of the car because he was was heavy, and and uh, he remembered driving up to the Wardman Park and the doorman seeing his car wanted to shoo him away, and uh, until he saw that the Chief Justice was in the in the front seat, and then he'd he'd, he'd greet them much more in a much more cordial way, and then. Uh, Vincent would, with some difficulty, get out of the car and, and go home. He was there seven years as chief. Do you remember what significant impact he had on the court and either how it ran or? Well, uh, uh, as far as I could tell, it, it it ran well. There was a there was some feeling, I think, in the, in the year or two before uh, I got there and before Art got there, that there was some friction within within the court, particularly. Uh, Jackson was concerned that he didn't become chief himself, and, and there, there was some feeling that there might have been some uh, antagonism between uh, Jackson on the one hand and uh, uh, Hugo Black on the other. Uh, I never actually witnessed anything like that, but uh, there's been a lot of writing about it, and I think there's some merit to it. I, I mention it because uh, uh, there was, as I say, there was this sense there might be some personal an antagonism within the court at the time, but when I got down there, I found it entirely different. I, I remember uh, at a Seventh Circuit conference uh, in, in sometime in around 1970 or so, uh, Thurgood Marshall came to the to the to Chicago, and in answering questions from the audience, he was asked about possible antagonism within the court, and he said, no, we're all perfectly good friends, there's none of that. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's that's for public consumption, but maybe it's not true. And so when I went, joined the court myself in 1975, I was sort of wondering whether Thurgood's story was accurate or not, and it was dead accurate. I should have known it. I mean, Thurgood is a, is a very honorable and uh, person. In fact, one of the, the most uh, trustworthy men I ever met. And uh, it turned out to be true. I mean, when I got down, there was a the very, the personal relationships are really excellent. And that, that was true during my entire tenure. What impact did uh, Chief Justice Vincent have on Brown versus the Board of Education? Well, of course, he was the chief while the case was, during the first arguments of the case and during the early deliberations, but he died before the, the court was able to decide it. So uh, it's a little difficult to, to know exactly what his, his uh, uh, whole role in the decisional process was, but I think he was the chief when they ordered re-argument and they ordered the lawyers to make rather extensive arguments on historical issues. They did, they had just quite a lot of briefing about the history of the 14th Amendment and, and what the attitude of the uh, uh, sponsors of the amendment were. And so he was, and, and a lot of that I think was suggested by Justice Frankfurter. And so I don't know just, you know, who had what role in, in, in that uh, as those deliberations developed. But uh, after Earl Warren 
became chief, then they they had an additional argument, and that's that's when it was decided, and it was decided in an opinion that really had very little to do with history. Uh, I want to put on the screen some other statistics and ask you a question. When you uh, retired from the court, I really wanted to ask you, I saw these numbers. Let's put it up there. It's, these are the longest-serving justices in history. There are 112 justices. Uh, William O. Douglas served the longest, um, over 36 years. Stephen uh, Johnson Field served 12,614 days. You served 12,611 days. You were three days short of being the second-longest-serving justice in history. Did you know that? I really didn't. I know people often ask me questions about whether I was trying to set a record or anything like that. And I really didn't particularly want to be remembered for the length of my service. And I never really paid much attention to it because that's not necessarily a, a, a testament to the, the, the quality of your service or, or its importance. And so I didn't, but I was interested to learn later and, and that, that I was close to, to the field. And I also been told or read somewhere that he really shouldn't get that many days because for the last several months of his service, he was either sick or he wasn't able to participate in their work. So I think may, <laughs> I think I may have even performed more t time of active, constructive <laughs> service on the court than he did. Well, we all—I mean, people that watch the court all thought you'd you'd outdo William O. Douglas and become the number one uh, serving justice. Well, that that would be, of course, I succeeded him, which which is, uh, and he he had served much longer than I did, I think, didn't he? I, I He's about over seven hundred days longer. Yeah, that's a couple well, of years. When uh, did you retire from the court? Well, uh, it was the, on the last, uh, the, the day after the last day of the, not this last term, but the term before. 2010. So 2010, right. Around June or July. Right. Yeah. Um, the next justice that you write about is Earl Warren. And before I get you to talk about him some, let's watch just a, this is a 1952 clip of him on the Long Jean Wittenauer program that used to run on television, black and white. Listen to what, he was the governor of California then, listen to what he has to say about the world in 1952. I don't believe that we can continue to travel the road to insolvency by uh, piling up a national debt year after year in, in time of peace. There's always a day of, of reckoning, and I believe that we, we have to do that. Uh, I, I believe that we, uh, I believe that we uh, can, and that we we must uh, restore integrity in government and the confidence of people in the integrity of, of their government. Well, he was a member of the Tea Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, uh, he was a Republican governor of the state of California, and was appointed by General Eisenhower to be uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. What do you remember about him, and when did you first meet him? Well, my memories of him go back long before I first met him, and I, I, I really, uh, I, I never had the kind of uh, informal meeting with him that I had with the others that I mentioned. My first personal contact with him was the, the, the day I presented an oral argument to the Supreme Court, which I st still remember vividly because even though I had witnessed a lot of arguments as a law clerk and as a practicing lawyer over the years, 
when I got up to argue uh, this case involving the Robinson-Patman Act issue that nobody would care about today, there he was. He's much closer than you appear to me now. <laughs> I had the feeling that there he was right in front of me. And I just, I have this vivid memory of, of being that close to the Chief Justice of the United States, which is a, a, uh, an experience you don't forget. And as a matter of fact, I think I may have mentioned this in the book. I've talked about this with uh, uh, John Roberts and with uh, Ruth Ginsburg and with Elena Kagan. And they all have this, remember the same sort of sensation at their first argument. And it's, it's, it's really a very memorable, uh, memorable event. In what, what happened to the case you were arguing? Did you win? No, I lost. <laughs> I lost. And it was, it's not, not an earth-shaking case, but uh, uh, they, they did decide a, a, a question of, uh, of statutory construction on the, under the cost justification defense under the Robinson-Patman Act. Now, you served 34-some years uh, on the court. What's it been like for you since you left? What, I mean, and, and why did you write the book? Well, uh, it's kind of a, a story that sort of grew by itself. Uh, when, I, when I left the court, I was invited to attend a fairly large number of informal sessions where I uh, talked to smaller groups like the Rotary and, and uh, groups in Arlington and, and elsewhere. And I was repeatedly asked, one of the questions that I always got was, you've served with three chief justices, tell us a little bit about how they were alike and how they differed. And uh, it just stuck with me that people seemed to be interested in, in the possible differences uh, between different chiefs. And then I thought, thinking back further, I thought, well, actually, I've, I've had some contact, not, the, not as, as intensive, with five, and the idea came to me that there might be a fair amount of interest in uh, talking about the chiefs. And in fact, uh, I remember talking to John Roberts about the same time and sa saying to him that I thought the public did not have a, f a full understanding of, of all the work the chief does. He has a fair number of additional responsibilities, and I thought it might be of interest to, to tell a little bit about some of the things the chief does that are, are different from what the other members of the court do. And also, the other side of the coin was, I wanted to make the point that when we are deciding the merits of cases, which is, of course, the most important thing we do, the nine of us really are all equal. The chief has certain procedural uh, uh, responsibilities, but when you're actually voting on the outcome of a case, he's just one of nine. So the two, the, the, both the interest in letting people know a little more about other work of the chief, as well as making the point that as an associate justice, I considered myself his equal on our most important work, uh, I thought both of those thoughts merited uh, sort of a, a discussion. And then as I got into writing it, it different ideas came to me. And, and uh, I, as I may have mentioned in other occasions, I enjoy writing. I like the, the work of writing opinions while I was a justice. And so I, this was kind of replaced a, a lot of that work that what I was doing as an active judge. And uh, so they grew like Topsy. Although I should say that the, the, I also have a section in there about the first uh, 12 chiefs who, who came 
for the, just as a background, and that was suggested by actually by my agent on the book suggested that would be helpful, and so I wrote that after, pretty much after the other parts of the book were put together, and that is is not a study in depth about the earlier chiefs, but sort of a, something to get the people who are not as familiar with the court as, as some scholars and some of the rest of us are, give them a little background that I thought might be of interest. What impact did Earl Warren's 15 and a half years as chief have on the country? Well, it had a, it had a tremendous impact. Uh, of course, I think the, uh, um, the, uh, m the most important case is Brown against the Board of Education, which uh, uh, he's famous for, and in, in, uh, uh, I think he's, he may well be responsible for producing a unanimous opinion. But as I suggest in the book, uh, I don't think the uni unanimity of the opinion is as important as the result itself, and I don't think it would have been the end of the world if, uh, if there had been ascending opinions expressing views that were fairly prevalent in society at the time. And, and so I've, I've never been uh, one who thought unanimity was an absolute requirement. And, and often, as I suggest in the, in the book, dissents will actually sometimes improve the quality of opinions because everyone knows then what arguments were considered and what the answers are to specific arguments. So I, I have uh, ne never been one who thought that the unanimous character was the, the major achievement. The major achievement was the result itself which I think was obviously, uh, obviously quite clearly correct. And interestingly about that case, I think the decision is not the product of, of the history and all the historical research that just uh, that Vincent and Frankfurt had requested, because I think a lot of that history suggests that the people who uh, adopted and ratified the uh, 14th Amendment did not anticipate or realize that it might put an end to segregated schools. I think the, the, the principle adopted required that result, but I'm not sure as a matter of t original intent, if you look, look at that term, that, that th this is a case in which there's a, the, the, the original, the, the actual intent of the draftsman is the same as the uh, result that they produced. You were appointed in 75 by Gerald Ford. Yes. You served under Warren Berger. Yes. Well, Let's, that, that's one of the points of the book. I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I made the mistake. You don't serve under anybody. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> let, me, let me go to the clip of Warren Berger. Everybody says that, yeah. and it's perfectly okay. Served with him. Yeah. But let, let me show that uh, uh, we did an interview. As a matter of fact, you talk about when he was chairman of the Bicentennial Commission on the Constitution, and we did an interview with him during that time. Here's a little clip so people who have not seen Warren Burger can see what he looks like. And we have, uh, give or take, 1,500 uh, in the federal judiciary, including uh, magistrates and uh, bankruptcy judges. There are very nearly 1,000 life tenure Article III judges now. Now, they are there because we need them, and we need more. Uh, Congress is constantly expanding federal jurisdiction, but we have to have more machinery to take care of it. What was it like serving with Chief Justice Warren Berger? Well, there, there are, of course, all sorts of uh, aspects of it. He's a very likable man, and he's, 
he was judged by others sometimes as being a little pompous and and uh, uh, more regal than he might have been, but he was a good presiding officer. He was a very uh, gracious public uh, appeal. He handled he handled uh, public affairs very well, uh, I, and the internal deliberations of the court. I think he was uh, less competent than either of his two successors. To be uh, uh, frank with you, he did many many fine things, but but I don't think he. Uh, handled the conferences as well as either Bill Rehnquist or John Roberts did, and I don't think he was as uh, accurate in the assignment of opinions as he might have been. I think at times he uh, assigned opinions to members of the court who didn't actually have the votes of five, five four other colleagues on every issue in the case. So, so he was less than perfect on. Uh, on his uh, uh, work as a presiding officer in in chamber in 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 conference, but I think he was an excellent presiding officer in the in in the public proceedings. I think he was very fair to both both sides, and and when there was a necessity for more time to make arguments, he he would, uh, he would frequently allow a little extra time in uh, in, in arguing. The the part of the court that the public knows very little about. Is the conference right? Where is the conference room, and who's in there when you're discussing a case? The conference room is uh, just east of the courtroom, across the hall, and back in the back of the of the building. And the people in the conference room during the conference are the nine members of the court and no one else. And in fact, uh, uh, the whenever it's necessary for somebody to send a message into the court. They'll, they'll knock on the door, and the junior justice has the responsibility of getting up and answering the door. And, and uh, Tom Clark used to say that, that he's the highest paid doorman in the country. That's one of, one of uh, your, your, your uh, uh, qualifications when you get there. And as I think, I don't remember I put this in the book, but I remember my first, uh, either my first or second conference, uh, I was paying very close attention to the discussion, as I remember it, and I failed to hear the knock on the door. And Billy Brennan on my left and Bill Rehnquist on my right both got up and answered the door. <laughs> and it made me feel like I was about two feet high. <laughs> and I learned from that that the mo one of the most important jobs of the junior justice is to remember that you're a doorman. One of the things you do discuss in your book is the difference being in a conference run by Warren Berger or Bill Rehnquist or John Roberts. Correct. Can you explain the differences and how Warren Berger changed what happened in the court about how you participate? Well, the, the change that I, I think he's responsible for, but I, 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 I can't testify from personal knowledge or actual uh, uh, Ash but I'm quite sure that the change was the change in the order of voting that he made. That when I was a law clerk under Wyatt Rutledge, he would talk about what happened in conference with his law clerks afterwards, and he explained that that the, the case would be discussed with the chief justice dis describing the case, and then the justices talking about the case in order of seniority explaining their general views of the case and so forth until they went to the end of the line. But then the voting began with the junior justice and was followed in reverse order. And I know that was the 
practice in when, when Rutledge was on the court when I was a law clerk cause he sh- he'd showed us his notes about how it did and 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 he was the second to vote uh, Burton was the uh, most junior justice and when I got there I was surprised to find that the chief not only discussed the case for, for but also voted and that's what happened the order of voting was in order of seniority and I can remember T- talking to Bill Rehnquist from time to time because he was the second junior. The two of us sat, sat next to one another. And we both exchanged the view that it was, we p- preferred the earlier practice because it gave the junior justice, we felt it would give the junior justice a better opportunity to persuade our seniors if they had not committed themselves to a particular position. But then when he became chief, his views on that issue changed, <laughs> and he, he went along with the other, other view. Explain the difference between being chief justice, what their responsibility is, and, and an associate justice. Well, it's an, it's a, the, 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 the chief has the, I say has the responsibility. He doesn't have to do it. He could just vote right away. But he states the case and what he thinks the controlling issues that need to be decided are before he explains how he, how he, uh, how he would vote. So part of his role is he's setting forth the basis for the further discussion. And as I think I say in the book, but it's my memory in any event, uh, Warren Burger was not as articulate and, and uh, as s- skillful in, explain, in setting forth the issues in a c- concise an unbiased manner as either of his successors were. And often when when Warren was the chief, uh, uh, either Bill Brennan or sometimes Potter Stewart, who was particularly articulate, Potter Stewart was a really brilliant lawyer, would state the case all over again. And he would state the issues in a more neutral fashion, and then the discussion would proceed. But but as I say, that's, that's one of the things in which uh, I think Berger was less skillful than some of the others. And I don't mean to suggest here that he wasn't a good lawyer. He was, Boron Berg was a very good lawyer, had, had argued cases in the court, and had been uh, the head of one of the uh, divisions of the Department of Justice after uh, Eisenhower was elected. You to, say in your book about Warren Berger that although he upheld the constitutionality of uh, the death penalty, that he personally was against it? Definitely, yeah. Both and so was, who was the other? Harry Blackman, Harry Blackman. the same way. There's, there's no doubt about it. On many occasions I heard him, in effect, say, this is not what I think ought to be the case, but uh, it's, a, it's a matter for, for a democratic process to decide. And, and he thought the role of the judge was to, obviously not to, to put forward his own views, but rather to follow what he thought. Did he ever was. say that publicly? I, I would assume he had, but I, I, I don't know. I and really, how often have you found that a justice will, will rule one way or write his opinion one way or join an opinion uh, when he or she disagrees Oh, very personally. often. Very, every, I, that's true of every member of the court on one or more issues. Can you give us an example of when you did that? Uh, it happened many, many times, but I just don't have one at the top of my head right now. But well, let's let's go on to. Uh, oh, I'll tell you one. Sure, the the uh, California the case involving the the uh, enforcement of, of the federal narcotics laws against uh, 
uh, users of medical marijuana in California who wanted to grow it on their own premises. And the question is whether under the Commerce Clause, the federal government had the power to enforce that statute. And I thought it was quite clear as a matter of power, the federal government could do just what it was thoughting to do. But I thought it was very unwise policy. And, uh, and so that uh, uh, there's a clear mix, mismatch between my policy views and my views of of what the law was. You also mentioned in your book that you, you and David Souter had an agreement uh, that he would tell you when it was time for you to quit? That's exactly right, and I think I may explain in the book. I'd had the same agreement with John Hastings on the Seventh Circuit, who was an excellent chief judge there, that he had asked me to to let him know if he thought, I, if I thought he was not performing, delivering the same quality work uh, as he had in the past. He, by the way, was was also a man who wrote out the first drafts of his uh, his own opinions. And I remembered that when I went on the court, and um, uh, when David came, I asked David if he would tip me off because it's something I think every every judge gets on, gets on in years is, has to realize is you have to uh, appreciate the views of others on that issue. You're not the best judge of your own talent. Did he ever tip you off? He, no, he never did, but that's because that's one of the things that uh, maybe tipped, uh, triggered my retirement. He left before I did, so I didn't have his protection anymore. So I figured he that was a a serious breach of contract on his part to resign before I did. You say that you sent a letter down to the White House in advance uh, telling them that you were going to retire. Yes. How much time did you give them? I don't remember. It's a, it's all a public matter, I think. I didn't, I didn't announce that letter at the same time I sent it. I think, I think that... Uh, I don't remember, but yeah. I just wondered what... Um, I think sometime in June. Uh, what triggered it, though? When did you... You remember the moment you said, that's it, I'm getting out? Uh, well, it was actually a process, and uh, I was asked this in, a, in another interview recently, and I think I misspoke about the details, but... Uh, I began thinking of it more seriously as the years went by, and uh, I think for I don't know how many years. But I think on, on on more than one occasion, I mentioned may may have mentioned to my law clerks that uh, I should be giving thought to that. And what did they have any suggestions? And they they were <laughs> very vociferous in trying persuading me that I should stay whenever I I did raise it. And then I became, uh, uh, I guess maybe it was the year David retired, but the year before I did retire, I decided just to hire a, a one law clerk. And that was pu publicly known. And so I was obviously seriously considering at that time that I would not, that that would be my last year. But when I, but when I did that, uh, two of my, I guess three of my, my uh, then law clerks, three out of the four of them told me that if I changed my mind, they'd work for me in the following year. So I wasn't as though I'd made it a, an irre irreversible decision. But obviously I was thinking seriously about it. And then the, I guess the, the, uh, the event that really sealed the decision for me was when I had to, when I didn't have to, but when I decided to announce my oral dissent in the Citizens United case, 
for some reason, I had trouble making the oral announcement. I stumbled with some of the uh, some of the uh, presentation, which I felt was unusual. I had thought I could was reasonably articulate over the years before, and I, I became conscious that I didn't do a very good job on that particular occasion. And I decided then, I think I may have mentioned it to Steve Breyer that, that very day, that uh, uh, maybe I have to give a little little thought to putting this to change my career. You still have an office in the court? I do. Have you sat on any circuit court uh, no, cases? No, I haven't. And one of the uh, important bits of information about retirement that I learned from uh, uh, Jeff Manier, the, the chief's uh, 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 the, the, solicitor, the solicitor to the chief, was that I'm entitled to keep my chambers and my law clerk and my secretary uh, even if I don't sit on cases. But if I, if I don't sit on cases, I will not be qualified for a raise in pay if, if <laughs> Congress ever grants a raise in pay. And I'm not, I, I, I think the court is entitled and deserves better pay, but I'm not really going to lose any sleep over, over the, the likelihood that there will be a salary increase. Here's the that. fourth Chief Justice you write about, William Rehnquist. He was there for 19 years. Let's right. watch just a, from an interview clip of him. Today, we do have a system called the CERT pool, CERT standing for certiorari, in which first five, then six, then seven, now eight of the justices pool their law clerks to write memos about the 5,000 petitions for certiorari. That did not exist when I was a law clerk. My co-clerk and I to Justice Jackson divided up uh, 1,200 cases between ourselves and, and uh, wrote little memos to him in that way. And I think Justice Stevens, who is the clerk not in the cert pool, still operates that way. Was that true? You did not operate as a part of the cert pool? That, that is true, and, and the bill's description of it is, is uh, exactly right. Uh, and um, it's, it's the, you, you might be interested in knowing that uh, Justice Alito, although he was a member of the first the cert pool his first year, and I don't know whether second or third, uh, has decided to, to operate independently. So that they're now, although for a while there were nine members of the pool, there are only eight again. That was recorded some years ago, and there were 5,000 cases presented every year. Now there are 9,000. Is that the number? I'd say? Uh, I think Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts says there's something like 9,000. Um, but have you changed your mind at all about how the cases are decided? I know that you talk in the book about the fact that there used to be a lot more cases argued and that they were, and I think it was Justice Berger that reduced the time to 30 minutes on each side? I think that's right. That's right. Because they used to be longer oral arguments, and you suggest in here that they ought to go back to longer oral arguments. I think they, they should go back to longer arguments on, on a fair number of cases. I'm not suggesting they should do it for, on every case. But, but I think that the, and, and they're, they're really for two different reasons. One is having a, 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 a smaller docket gives you more time. And, you, and you, 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 the, the time available for an argument is four hours in, in each argument day. It used to be two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. Uh, and now they very rarely sit in the afternoon, and so they have the time available for them. And the second change is that it, particularly in cases with multiple issues that are rather divisive, there's an awful lot of time taken up with questioning. And I think that more time is taken up in questioning 
these days than it was when I first joined the court or when I was a law clerk. And I think so much time is taken up that sometimes the lawyers really don't get an adequate opportunity to say everything that uh, they plan to say. And, and so I think that there, it would be, in those cases, more time would be more fair to the lawyers and more helpful to the court. And uh, uh, also that if the whole process would be approved. They, I don't think they have to do it in every case. What about Chief Justice Rehnquist? What do you most remember about him? Oh, well, uh, there's many, many things that I remember about him. In fact, uh, uh, having watched the Redskins on this Sunday, I, I think I would have won two bucks from him. <laughs> you bet every game. We bet on virtually every game. And it was actually a dollar. We normally made a dollar bet. It was very serious. Who won the most? Uh, Bill won a good deal more. Than I, think, I think I tended to let my my uh, interest and my desire about who should win influenced my vote more than it should have. What impact did he have on the running of the court? Well, he was, a more, I think, a more efficient uh, presiding officer, both in uh, the ch uh, conferences and, and in open court as well. I think perhaps he may have been too efficient in open court. He's very, very firm on when the red light goes on, the argument's over. And I think there are times when he might have been wise to give uh, a little more time. But on the whole, he did an excellent job. He was totally impartial. He didn't. That he t he treated all litigants ex exactly alike, and they all had to watch the lights. Well, you mentioned when you're talking about that a, a man that everybody knows on this network, a former senator, Arlen Specter. Yes. And that he tried to get a couple of words in edgewise when he was in front of the court. Yes, he he was arguing a case just as as uh, representing. Uh, a client, I can't remember the details of the case right now, and wanted to continue argument, and, and the, but his time was up, and the chief uh, insisted that the argument was over, and I, I think Senator Specter had never, never forgiven him for that. Well, not only does he appear not to have forgiven him, but he also introduced legislation to f try to force the court to go on television. That's right. He believes very firmly that the court should go on television. What was your reaction to that resolution that he was trying to get passed? Well, uh, it, that's a difficult issue. It, it's not not one I discuss in the in the case, in the uh, in the book. Um, on the one hand, that televising the court would be good for the for the court and for the country because I think people would realize that the justices are very thorough in their uh, pre preparation for arguments and their understanding of the cases. They ask intelligent questions, and they, the people, I think, are generally favorably impressed when they see the court at work. And so that's a very strong plus, and that's really, I think, what Senator Specter is primarily interested in. But the other side of the coin is that television often has unexpected and unintended consequences. And you're never 100% sure that it might not cause a change in the procedure that would have an adverse effect on it. You mentioned football a little earlier. I remember going to a game, sitting in the stands, and all of a sudden the players are standing around for a minute or two. What? What? Why are they? And then you realize it's a commercial. The te television has got get their commercials in, so that it causes changes. And and the televising of legislative proceedings, I think, has had sometimes had an adverse effect 
on the quality of what goes on. So you're never 100% sure what the consequences of televising would be. And and I think the members of the court, I think most of them feel more strongly than, than I do or I did, but I think they are very concerned that the televising might have an unforeseen adverse impact where both lawyers and justice, an occasional justice might behave differently than he would if he was not being televised. What is your guess as to what will happen over the years with television? Because, For instance, just yesterday when we're recording this, the Pennsylvania <clears throat> State Supreme Court made a big, you know, they had a public meeting where they're gonna, they went on television for the first time and now all their proceedings are on television. Well, and I, and then I think Florida, Florida Supreme Court was one of the first to do that too. And I think basically the experience has been has has not been adverse. In fact, they have a library, I think, in which uh, lawyers can go look at prior arguments and learn a little bit more about the best way to proceed. So I don't, from what I understand, I don't think that the extent it's been used in state courts, it has had the adverse effect that we can serve. But I think one reason for that is that it's not the most popular program in the in the world. I don't think there's a, a tremendous audience for uh, the everyday argument of every state Supreme Court uh, decision that is argued. Whereas there's, I think the audience would probably, at least in some cases, uh, be be larger if it, uh, arguments of the United States Supreme Court. Think it'll ever go on television? Well, uh, Ever is a long word, but but I, I wouldn't hold my breath, that's for sure. In the book, you talk about the fact that uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had the four gold stripes on his, on his, uh, uh, help me out here, on his robe. On his robe. Right. <clears throat> what, do you th- what did you think of that idea? And did you ever tell him what you thought of that idea? Well, uh, I'm not 100% sure to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, he did, uh, at, at one time, before he had his own robes to, uh, decorated with the stripes, uh, he did make a suggestion to all of us in an informal gathering that that he thought that the robes that some foreign dignitaries had worn were very impressive and we ought to, ought to, ought to give thought to it. And I think I remember, and this again, it's, I, this is not in the book, but, but, but uh, and perhaps I shouldn't even be saying it publicly, but I think I remember Sandra O'Connor saying that his suggestion reminded her of President Nixon's suggestion that he should have the military personnel at the White House have white uniforms. You know, and she thought it was a very bad idea. <laughs> and she also thought it would be a bad idea for the court to depart from the very conservative back, black robes that we've always, always followed. And uh, I, I don't think the chief needs a special form of dress to identify himself in the, in the courtroom. What, what would be the legalisms of that? Could you have put four stripes on your uh, robe if you wanted to? Uh, I assume I could. I don't know. I, I, it, I, could the other justices have prevented the chief from putting four stripes on his robe? That's an interesting question. I, I don't think so. I, 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 well, who, I don't know. I, I suppose if we had felt strongly enough about it and, and as a majority asked him not to do it, we, he probably would have respected. But that's the kind of thing that the, each member of the court pretty much re, uh, respects the judgment of the, the member who may be doing it, I think. Who assigns him something as simple as an office? 
How do you get to choose your office? Well, it's, it's uh, a little bit like asking uh, uh, who decided he's going to be chief. You know, a lot of these things just happened, and they've never been changed. It's been part of the practice and the tradition throughout the court. Uh, the, uh, the first chief, I guess, was, was designated chief by President Washington, and that's been followed. But I don't think there's any law that would prevent the, the members of the Supreme Court from treating that office uh, as, as other state appellate courts do, where they either rotate the chiefship one year after another, or they elect the, choose him by lot or something like that. So that I don't think there's a statute or a provision in the Constitution of which I'm aware that specifies that the president shall May, they'll nominate the chief, but he's always done it. We've always been happy with it, and so no, nobody's even thought about it, as far as I know. So, in your thirty-four years plus over there, did you how how many different offices were you in? Uh, well, I was in one, two, three, four, four different offices. And you move according to seniority when? No, well, it it yes, uh, yes and no. I first started in the office that I'm occupying right now, which is in a beautiful spot on the uh, uh, west side of the building where I have a beautiful view of the Capitol. It is the office that was, as I understand it, was originally thought to be assigned to the retired Chief Justice. And, I, and Warren Berger did use it when he retired, but there was no retired Chief Justice. When, when I joined the court and Bill Douglas wanted to keep his chambers and I didn't want to make an issue out of it, so I, I first moved into the, uh, the location at the, at the front of the court. And then I, I was able to leave that office and move halfway down the hall when uh, Tom Clark died. He had chambers in the, in the side of the court, and I went to his chambers for two or three years. And then when Potter Stewart retired, uh, I moved into his chambers on the, on the corner, which is a beautiful office. And I stayed there until they did the serious redecoration three or four years ago in which all sorts of changes in the court were made. And, and when the a justice's chambers remodeled, the justice had to take to temporary quarters elsewhere. And when they remodeled my chambers, I moved into Justice O'Connor's chambers, and I liked them, so I just stayed there. <laughs> so, and then I was there until I retired. I counted, and <clears throat> I did it quickly before we started here, that, it, that you've served with 19 of the 112 justices is that over right? the years. Yeah, I, and I guess, I don't know that this is a, kind of question you want to answer, but who over those years were you the closest to personally? You know, it's interesting. I should have, a, have an answer to that question, and I've been thinking about it lately. I, I was very fond of Byron White. I, I was fond of all of them, but then I said, you know, I, I felt very strongly about Lewis Powell and, and uh, uh, Potter Stewart and Billy Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, they're all very, very good. Harry Black, I don't, I, I, we were all friends, and I think uh, it was a genuine friend of Cassandra the same way, and, and, and David when he came on. That, and it's really difficult to, to elevate one uh, over the other. Well, you talk about sitting on the bench next to, as you say, Nino, right. uh, Antonin Scalia, and uh, there was one point where I don't know whether I, I can get my notes or not, where, yeah, here it is, where, where he leaned over to you in the middle of an argument and said, must be dumb defendant day. <laughs> dumb defendant day. How often did you do 
did you whisper those to each other? Well, not that particular phrase, but but Nino is a delightful guy. He's an absolute has a, a a wonderful sense of humor, and you know he's very very brilliant. So he comes up with things on very short notice, and there were more than one occasion when when I was very happy to be a beneficiary of one or more of his remarks. I I uh, I, I can't overstate uh, how. How clever a person he is. Here's your fifth Chief Justice, John Roberts. Justice Brandeis uh, once said he could do the 12 months worth of work at the court in 10 months, but he couldn't do it in 12 months. Um, it's good that we get something of a break from each other. Um, uh, we have work that we continue to do. We continue to pour through those 9,000 petitions that come in. You can't put those off till the fall. You have to keep up with those. We get emergency matters uh, uh, from time to time. But we do get out of Washington. The workload is, is significantly uh, reduced. Um, get to spend a little more time with my family than uh, was the case during, uh, is always the case during the, uh, uh, during the sitting. You said about Bill Rehnquist that he said, call me Bill, but you didn't. They would call him chief? We called him chief. We really did, yeah. What's the relationship? I mean, you're considerably older than John Roberts. What happens when a young man like that comes into the court? I called him chief. I still feel, I, I, if I see him today, I, I, I feel more comfortable calling him chief than, than John. He would, it wouldn't bother him in the slightest if, if, uh, uh, if I called him John because we're good friends. But uh, it's just one of those traditions and part of the court that uh, uh, sticks with me. What's been his impact on the court? How has he affected the, the operation itself? Well, uh, he's he's continued to, to do a very uh, a fine job in in uh, handling the conferences. He's an excellent presiding officer. I think he may well be the the uh, uh, best of the of uh, well. I don't. I can't really. Uh, evaluate Warren in that particular because I know he was very highly regarded the way he handled uh, public affairs too. But uh, but John is is a, uh, a an excellent presiding officer. He's particularly good also in public affairs where he might have to be uh, talking to a group of judges from a foreign country who are paying a visit to the court or something and explaining what's going on there. He has a he always would have a a something interesting to say about the history of the court that they could understand and appreciate. He's a he's a very attract he's a very attractive person. So what of all the 112 over the years? Let's pick on the ones that you didn't serve with. Who would you have liked to have known? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, uh, I guess the ones that come, the the three that that. Uh, come most immediately to mind are the three that I regarded uh, as heroes when I was a law student, uh, uh, Cardozo and Brandeis and Holmes. Card uh, Brandeis was the first Jewish member of the court? Uh, yes, I think that's right. Does, because now I believe there's something like, what is there, six Catholics and three Jews on the court now, uh, now that you've gone, <clears throat> is it does it matter when people look at the court from the outside and they see that does that make a difference as to how people make decisions no i don't think it does i don't think it makes a, a difference at all although at one time 
uh, it was thought to be important. I mean, there was a, considered to be a Jewish seat on the court for a while, and that went from, uh, I, I guess, I don't know whether, whether Steve or Ruth has, has that now, but in any event, uh, I don't, and I guess I'm the last wasp. I'm, <laughs> You're the last wasp. And and when when I first came on the court, of course, it was, was done. Most of the court over the years has been Protestant and uh, white Anglo-Saxon, so that that that's true. But I don't think it makes a particle of difference. It it really is totally irrelevant in the discussions. And uh, uh, there may be an occasion when a religious holiday is given. To particular significance by a, a member of the court, but other than that, it's it, it's totally irrelevant to to the decisional process. How did you do this book? I did it the same way I write opinions. I I had ideas and I'd write them out, and I uh, then I'd do more, and then I when I got to a certain point, I asked my law clerk to read it over and make suggestions and it as he as my law clerks had done on my opinions and and I got excellent suggestions uh, as I went along and as I think I may have mentioned my agent suggested the chapter about the earlier chiefs that that uh, but uh, I wrote it you know most of it at home some of it in the office and uh, I'm sure over the years you read the media copy on the way you made your decisions and whether or not <clears throat> Jerry Ford was happy with your political positions on the different issues. The question isn't that so much as did you and President Ford ever talk about that in private? No, no, never, n never either before I was appointed or, or after I was appointed. Uh, he did write me a letter that I'm very proud of that I've got uh, on my wall, which and generally indicates uh, agreement with, with my judicial work, but uh, I don't remember ever discussing uh, any legal legal issue with him. What do you want people, what's the thing you want most to take away from this book? From, from the book? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. There's, it, it's, it, in a way, it's kind of a mishmash because it's a mixture of, of personal recollections and uh, comments on different aspects of the law and different people. So uh, I, I, just, I just don't know. I don't expect it to be uh, valued very highly by scholars because it's not really directed at scholars and I think perhaps there's some members of the general public will think I've got too much discussion of cases in there and others may may feel otherwise it's kind of hard to say because it's a it's a, it's something that just kind of kind of grew as I worked on it Justice John Paul Stevens we're out of time great the name <laughs> of the book is called five chiefs thank you very much for joining us well thank you you've been very kind to me For a DVD copy of this program, call 1-877-662-7726. For free transcripts, or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at QA.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.